Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me this morning, inviting me to come here. Um, I didn't personally ever have the schluss of learning from Rabbi Tendler, but I certainly consider myself as one of a chain of a legacy that he leaves. Um, I've learned from many individuals who have learned from him, and I feel really very, very gracious to um, have been invited to participate in today's uh, events. Um, as a fertility specialist, I get to see all sorts of different um, circumstances, and I've chosen of late to focus on um, fertility preservation is something that I do now frequently and pretty much my primary focus clinically um, and research-wise. Um, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist at Extend Fertility, which is the first and maybe only uh, full-fledged medical practice that is focused primarily on um, fertility preservation for all women. Um, but I also direct the Oncofertility Division, where we treat women um, and men uh, who have a recent diagnosis of, uh, of cancer and how and counseling them and how that may impact their fertility, their future fertility, um, and what options are available to them. Uh, these are some conflicts of interest. Obviously, I work at Extend Fertility where we do fertility preservation, so anything I say that promotes fertility preservation in theory also promotes my financial well-being. <laughs> so in recent years, particularly when we talk about um, childhood malignancies, there has been an enormous growth in the ability for children to survive malignancies that occur in the pediatric years. So much so that I was recently at a conference entitled the Onco Fertility Conference, um, where someone quoted that they had calculated that one out of every 700 adults is a survivor of a pediatric cancer. And that is an astounding, astounding um, statistic, and one that we really need to grapple with in terms of we are no longer looking at struggling for survival, but we have to talk about survivorship, meaning what, how do we view the lives of these young children who then grow on to be adults? Here are some statistics. Uh, up in the right-hand corner comes from the United States. The National Cancer Institute does surveys of five-year relative survival. Um, in 1975 to 1977, all malignancies in children diagnosed under the age of 14, there was a 58% survival. Now, in 2008 to 2014, that's an 84% survival. That is an astounding growth in the ability to treat malignancies in this population, um, such that we really have not seen in really many other areas of medicine. Um, the one in the, in the bottom right-hand corner is a European study from the UK that looks at how many individuals are survivors of childhood malignancies based on their age. And if you look, um, oops, sorry, uh-oh. Um, you know, in the late 1990s, you're talking about this is where that one out of every 700 um, adults comes from. There's an enormous growth in the amount of adults who have survived childhood malignancies. And so what we really need to look at is what kind of aspects of the fact that these children and then later as adults have survived cancers impact their quality of life. And there's been many, many studies looking at sort of the long-term aspects that impact quality of life. And really primary amongst many of these adults who have survived um, pediatric cancers is their ability to procreate and their family building that um, you know, they are concerned about it as young adults. They are concerned about their ability to have families later on in life. And then as older adults, they are concerned about how that impacts their ability to conceive, their ability to have the family size that they desire. Um, and those are not only concerns, but then they then seek out medical treatment because they do have some deficiencies that maybe they aren't aware of, um, or we as a society aren't aware of. 
the field of oncofertility or the term oncofertility um, was developed a little over 10 years ago. Um, it was really spearheaded by a physician who's a reproductive endocrinologist and a physician scientist in Northwestern University in Chicago. Her name is Teresa Woodruff. She just won the award from the uh, American Academy of Medicine um, for really being sort of a, 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 um, a leader in this field. Um, and there's really three ways to approach a new malignancy in terms of its impact on fertility. So the first is to discuss gamete preservation, egg freezing, sperm freezing, embryo freezing. Um, in, in this regard, you know, the, the advent of, of assisted reproductive technologies has really allowed this to become relatively commonplace. Um, many, many young men and women who are faced with a, um, a new diagnosis of malignancy, this is a very early conversation that's happening, typically between the patient and his or her oncologist. And the fact that that's happening as an early conversation is really to the credit of this oncofertility movement. Um, they've really tried to bring it out of the reproductive endocrinology world, the infertility world, and into the oncology world, so that those conversations are happening early and often in the young adult population. Um, there are many times when gamete preservation is not an option. For example, typically in uh, a, leukemia, a leukemia diagnosis, there acute leukemia, there isn't really enough time to discuss, you know, having the opportunity to do a gamete preservation. Those cycles, at best, take two weeks, um, and sometimes they can take longer than that. Uh, and so in a, in a situation where someone needs to be treated immediately, those are not options. And so there are other options that can be taken. Um, there's something we can use gonadal suppression. So we can use medications that help suppress the eggs, the ovaries or the testicles to the effects of chemotherapy and radiation. We'll talk a little bit about that. Unfortunately, not as successful as we would like it to be. Um, and the last is also to discuss modifying some of the treatments and the options in order to allow them to be more fertility sparing. And this has, there's really been a lot of strides that have been made in this regard as well. Uh, so cryopreservation options. This is still essentially the gold standard in terms of um, being able to preserve fertility, particularly for young adults who have um, malignancies. Uh, eggs, sperm, and embryos can now be preserved essentially equally. There used to be concern that embryos were really more viable than eggs um, and maybe sperm, but generally the technology has improved to the point, um, especially in my, you know, in my particular niche field, we do freezing quite frequently. Our uh, viability rates for eggs and embryos are essentially the same. Um, the downsides to it, though, are that it requires time often requires at least three to four weeks, and that's time that some people don't have. Um, it really has to be done in post-pubertal boys and girls, meaning it's very, very difficult to um, procure gametes from pre-pubertal girls and boys. Um, and then there's also ethical and legal and halakhic issues that come up in discussing the disposition of those eggs, embryos, sperm. What happens after this you know, child or young adult survives cancer? What's the status of these embryos, um, eggs, or sperm? There are newer technologies, and this is really cutting edge, that's you know, not, certainly not widely available, but is available in certain centers in the United States and Europe, where they're looking at ovarian and testicular tissue cryopreservation particularly to be available to those prepubertal boys and girls, could you extract some tissue from the ovary and the testicle 
freeze that tissue and then re-implant it later on after the child is healthy or as when the child is a young adult and then utilize that tissue um, for pregnancy, either with essential rep assisted reproductive technologies or a natural pregnancy. Uh, there's a lot of data that's been utilized. There's, um, there are some physicians in Israel who are really leading the charge. Um, and there have been babies that have been born from this technology. Uh, it's certainly not widespread just yet, partially because it requires an additional surgery that that child may or may not have needed. Um, it's less time-consuming in that you don't require this month-long process, but the alternative is that the, in the outcomes are really inconclusive. Uh, there have been many more procedures and many more attempts for pregnancy than there have been successful pregnancies. This will change as we get to learn the technology better. Um, the really amazing piece of this that I've witnessed and I've seen um, cases of is young women who have undergone undergone chemotherapy and radiation as a result have ovarian failure, meaning they are essentially in menopause in their early 20s. They had the opportunity to freeze tissue from their ovaries, and they had that, that tissue then reimplanted afterwards. They are hormonally menopausal when the tissue gets reimplanted. Within a month or so, they start to have normal physiologic hormone levels that you would see with menstrual cycles. And they actually regain menstrual cycles. The real problem is that this is not long-lived, and so it will last for three, six months, and then it sort of peters out. Um, and so there's, this is a major um, new advent, but it's still only available in certain centers in the United States. And because it's inconclusive, it's really not being wide, widely recommended. Oh, sorry, I knew I had some pictures here. Okay, so this is pictures of, ovary, of ovarian tissue being re-implanted. Um, and like I said, the best candidates who are going to really benefit from this are going to be prepubital boys or girls who are undergoing treatment that will, by definition, um, obliterate their future chances of fertility. So those are people, you know, boys and girls who are going to have bone marrow transplants, who are going to need full body radiation. Um, those who are going to get high dose radiation to the brain because that will cause their hypothalamus, which ultimately regulates the hormonal system for the for the reproductive tract um, to essentially be lost. Um, and those who get high doses of alkylating agents, which is a kind of chemotherapy that really is very gonadotoxic. Um, like I said, the, the uh, availability is very limited. And really the major ethical concern that, that I often grapple with and that we talked about at this last conference that I was at is that are we um, sort of inadvertently compromising the future fertility of these boys and girls? Because we know that surgically removing a part of the gonad, either the ovary or the testicle, you are by definition injuring that person's fertility reserve. Um, and here, you know, there's an opportunity to preserve it, but in those for whom it may not be necessary, are we sort of inadvertently putting them at a disadvantage where we're trying to help them? Um, and, you know, issues that have been brought up here earlier in the first session, in the earlier session this morning over autonomy, ownership, wishes, to what do you do with that tissue if that child passes away, those are things that, that are being grappled with as well. Options for when kind of traditional fertility preservation is not available, I mentioned gonadal suppression with something called a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, or Lupron. Lupron is a, is a medication that really shuts down the reproductive system from the level of the brain. Um, and the thought being that if the reproductive system is suppressed, it will be less susceptible to the toxicities of the, of the chemotherapy. And to some degree that is true, um, but, and it's, 
you know, what's nice about it is very easy. It's an injection. It can be taken, you know, anyone can give it. You don't need any special treatment. You don't need any, any wait period. Um, and so it's very, it's relatively easy. It's widely available. Lots of um, oncology teams are utilizing it. The unfortunate is that it's really not as effective as we would like it to be. Um, and rarely do we see that it's having the same kind of effect that, um, that any of the other cryopreservation options do have. So we often utilize it really as a last resort, um, and often it's really not as successful as we hope it could be. Um, and then there's fertility sparing protocols. Uh, there have been major strides that have been made in the pediatric oncology world altering what are sort of traditional chemotherapy regimens to try to decrease exposure to alkylating agents, which I mentioned is a group of chemotherapies that are particularly gonadotoxic. Um, there's a procedure called an oophoropexy, where you take, the, you take the ovaries and you tack them outside of the pelvis. So somebody who's having pelvic radiation, you try to move the ovaries outside of the field of radiation. Um, these are, the oophoropexy, for example, is, is less common since there are other options that seem to be potentially better. Um, but these are ways in which pediatric and young adult oncologists are starting to think more about the survivorship, the long-term quality of life that their patients will have following their hopeful survival from their initial um, oncology diagnosis. Now what I want to spend the next few minutes discussing is sort of a unique aspect of female fertility survivalship. Um, because what's really happening now with the advent of successful pediatric and young adult chemotherapy and radiation treatments is that 90% of girls and young women are coming out of their chemotherapy and radiation with some element of their fertility still intact. Um, and like I mentioned, there are a few exceptions to this. But the majority of these women or young girls have some fertility, meaning they will not be in early menopause when they finish their chemotherapy and radiation. However, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they are at high risk for infertility and early menopause later on in life. Um, and generally, what sort of there's been very little attention paid to these this population because it's you know their their menstruation their cycles come back they seem to be able to live normal lives. Um, you know, the girls who have had chemotherapy and radiation pre-pubertally, they tend to go through puberty normally. That, that has been a concern in, in years past. And so this, this group of women, to some degree, um, has kind of fallen out of the limelight of concern, and yet there's a real opportunity here to help these, these young women um, in terms of their future fertility. Just to demonstrate, this is age at which some, you know, somebody receives chemotherapy um, and whether or not they go into acute ovarian failure. So leukemia, like I mentioned, since those are ones who often will need um, bone marrow transplants uh, and they may need um, more high dose of alkylating agents, tend to have the highest uh, rates of ovarian failure. But many of, more than half of these women, especially in, in young ages, will not have ovarian failure um, immediately after, at, but if you look here, who are the, many of them are at high risk for experiencing infertility later on in life, even if they've resumed their menstrual cycles, even if they do, are not in acute ovarian failure, they have about a 20% higher risk than the general public for developing infertility later on. Um, and so because we've really expanded our knowledge of how female fertility works, 
and what happens to female fertility as we age, we can really understand what it is that's happening to these young girls and what kind of injury are we really seeing from their chemotherapy and radiation. So there's really two aspects of female fertility. One is the egg quantity, meaning the number of eggs that are present in the ovary. Females, unlike males, are born with all the eggs we will ever have. Um, and over time, we lose those eggs. And eventually, when the egg quality falls below a certain threshold, I mean, the egg quantity, sorry, falls below a certain threshold, a woman will stop having menstrual cycles and go into menopause. That aspect tends to be pretty constant as we go through life. Everyone's born with a different number of eggs. Everybody loses them at different speeds, but that's a pretty standard pathway. The other is egg quality, um, meaning what is the likelihood that any one egg could go on to produce a healthy baby? What happens here is that as women age, errors start to accumulate in the DNA of the eggs themselves. And so you start to end up with more and more eggs that have chromosomal errors. They have too many or too few chromosomes. And so naturally what we start to see is that even women who have you know, completely normal menstrual cycles, as we get older, more and more of those eggs are unable to produce healthy babies. And they tend to either just not work, which is why naturally the length of time that it takes to conceive goes up as women get older. The risk of infertility goes up as women get older. The risk of miscarriage goes up as women get older. The risk of Down syndrome goes up, etc. as women get older. Now, miscarriages, certainly Down syndrome, are rare, um, but that is all, for the most part, due to a decrease in egg quality or an increase in the proportion of abnormal eggs. Um, and so this is a slide that we tend to use um, in a lot of our educational material from my practice, looking at you know, women who are young usually have a high quantity of eggs, and most of their eggs are genetically normal. So they are, it's like a gumball machine, and one gumball comes out each month, and the chances that a good gumball is coming out are very high in young women. In older women, fewer eggs are, to the total is much smaller, and more of those are abnormal. We measure egg supply to some degree with a uh, hormone called AMH, or anti-mullerian hormone. It's not a perfect test, but it's sort of the best one we have. And generally what we see is that as women age, AMH will go down because egg supply will go down. Oversimplifying for this purpose, but go, go with me on this. This bottom slide, and I apologize that it came out a little fuzzy, um, looks at what happens to women or young girls who undergo chemotherapy. And so what you start to see, is, there a, is one of these a pointer? Yes, okay. So what you see is generally it starts, this is pre-diagnosis, they have sort of a normal curve, there's this acute insult, and eventually to, for most a recovery, but the recovery for the women with cancer is shorter lived than, a gener than the general population. So ultimately many of these girls and young women are gonna recover, so they'll have some fertility, but there's an accelerated aging process. The acceleration happens not as a result of a loss in egg quality, meaning their egg quality and the degree to which their eggs are chromosomally normal tends to still be preserved because these are young women, but the quantity of their eggs rapidly declines. And so this is a real opportunity for intervention in the future, or really in the present, um, to be able to counsel young women who have, who have experienced a pediatric malignancy, recognizing that they are at high risk for needing some kind of intervention in the future, especially in a community like ours where, you know, the, the desire to have a family 
is so strong and the ability to grow a large family is a real element of our quality of life that we really should not be um, withholding from these young women who have, who have, um, who have survived malignancies. Um, and I know my time is, is running out, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly move forward. But just to tell you kind of why does this all matter, uh, this is my husband. Uh, in 2005, when he was a student here at Yeshiva University, right after we got married, um, and undergoing his chemotherapy treatment, and we just celebrated his bar mitzvah, so to speak, um, and here with a new Bill's hat, uh, but here is our four daughters. And as a result of sort of the advent and the, the openness to discussing and recognizing that many young adults are going to survive their, their malignancies and giving an, the power to think about the future that they may have afterwards is an enormous task that we, have, we are um, given as a community and as a medical profession and one that has, been, has, has the ability to really pay off in spades. Um, and thank you. And I've listed some, some resources here uh, for anyone who has interest or if you come across somebody who could use, utilize them. privilege to be able to follow such an illustrious speaker who grew up in our community and actually lived in our building as a newlywed and it was the most heartwarming part was to see the picture of her husband and the uh, wonderful family my job today in the limited time that I have is to discuss some of the halachic aspects which surround the very learned pr presentation which preceded mine. I do so for the recognition that we are, as Dr. Burns put it so beautifully, in somewhat of a brave new world. I thank him for giving me a passport to that, to that world. And we also recognize the presence of Rabbi Tendler Shalita, one of the pioneers in Jewish medical ethics. I have to say that my first encounter with this painful topic had a painful ending. A long time ago, I was a much younger rabbi in Young Israel of Riverdale. It was a very sad situation of a young man who had precisely this problem. And I was asked this difficult question may sperm be preserved in order to enable this man to have a family in the hope that he would survive his treatment. I issued a permissive ruling. Unfortunately, he did not survive. And we just turned out the statistics were so difficult then as compared to now. I was asked what to do with the sperm and I told the father to dispose of it immediately. <coughs> so I've been involved in these kinds of situations for a long time. They don't always have happy endings. But I'm here to analyze some of the things which were brought up by Dr. Maslow 
fortunately for me, I was able to get a bit of a primer before hearing her speak in an article which just came out a few months ago in a magazine in Israel called Emunat Itecha Tishrei Tovshin Ayintet, just now, a few months ago, on precisely this topic. Shimur Poriut Etzel Cholei Sartan. Literally, preserving fertility for those who suffer from cancer. And it's divided into two halves, for ladies first, and then gentlemen. And some of these things which was described by Dr. Mazda, which I would have thought came from a, a new world braver than our own, I read about, and I saw this article, so it's, it's really true. And apparently the fact that Israel is a pioneer here is also true. Quite remarkable. But of course, all of these uh, new processes have halachic implications. And therefore, this article is divided, both halves of it, the female followed by the male, first with the description of the new medical breakthroughs, all of whom, which have been discussed already. And then, they, told, they call the part which is called halachot. How does the halacha view these new breakthroughs? And I'm going to try in the limited time that I have to discuss some of the issues involved. We'll begin again with the ladies first. And they point out what Dr. Mazza just said. When a terrible diagnosis comes up, people are so concerned with preserving the life of the patient, they sometimes forget, because life preservation is number one priority, about the future fertility of the woman in question, which is unfortunate. Not only that, this is a very important point. Aside from the clear medical benefit of being able to have children in the future, as they put it, the mere fact that the patient is attempting to preserve her fertility is an indication of a positive attitude. I'm going to survive this. I'm going to become a mother. And as has been shown in many studies, the positive attitude of the patient is critical in survival rates. We would think survival is purely science. But it's not true according to the studies. The mental attitude of the patient has a critical role. And having a patient who is told, we're going to try to make you better, but you're not going to have any children for the rest of your life, can be very depressing and can have a literal impact on the survival rate itself. Not just the fertility rate, it's the survival rate. So telling a young lady, we're going to get you better and we're going to still preserve your fertility, enables her to approach it with a much more positive attitude, which will increase her survival rate. More than that. More than that. There are situations, not of children, of young adults, who face this terrible diagnosis. And maybe they even had children already. So the first, I had two children, even if I fulfilled the technical commandment of Puru which by the way is not technically incumbent upon the woman, but obviously without her, no man can fulfill it. So I did it already. I had, had a boy and a girl. My husband and I have a boy and a girl. So I'm not going to even think about this right now. I have to, to preserve my life. That's also a mistake they point out over here. Right now, that's what she's thinking. Right now, of course, the life preservation is much more important. But down the road, she may have a change of heart. If things were done, which will unfortunately prevent her from having children later on, she'll say, oh, what did I do? 
she'll come to regret it, which is a very sad result, assuming, that, of course, that she survives the treatment. And therefore, with respect to these new technologies, everything possibly should be done to preserve fertility as much as possible. I was shocked when I heard it from you. I wasn't shocked because I read it just a few days before, but the idea of taking out cells from the uh, woman, taking them out and putting it back in again later on, and they start to work again, that's really, <laughs> for me, it's a brave new world. I didn't know about it until a few days ago. But if I wouldn't have seen this, I would, I would have just would have keeled over when you, when you told me that exists. These, these technologies are really mind-boggling when you think about it. It just really boggles the mind. And we are so grateful to the medical profession and the people like Dr. Maslow who are doing these things and pioneering these things and, and, and working on it right away. It's not time to have 10 years of experimentation because there are patients right now. Right now. Question. Are any risks involved in these types of procedures? The good doctor didn't mention it. I understand the risks are relatively minor, but as I understand, every medical procedure has some level of risk. And Rabbi Tendler Shlita is quoted in this article and in the book which preceded it called the Sefer Pua as being cautious. If a couple already has children, they should be much more cautious in terms of taking certain risks. Others have disagreed with, with the good Rabbi Tendler and said that the risks are so small that even if a person wants to have additional children, they should be allowed by halacha to take that risk. Or we do know that having any child has a certain amount of risk. Even if that one never had cancer, no, just every child is a risk. It's a small risk, indeed. And the Sefer Meshachachma writes in Parshat Noah that the very reason why women are not commanded to have children is precisely because of the risk factor. The Torah would not want to command someone to do something that is a risk to life, especially in those days. Time of the Torah, when maternal death, we, we have a read song right with Rachel Imenu. And one of the great ironies of the Bible, when Rachel Imenu was childless, we just read it a few weeks ago, says, Give me children, or else I'm going to die. Mason, I'm done. And what happens at the end? She dies in childbirth. And that's just one of the ironies of biblical times. Although today the risk is much, much, much lower, but there is a risk. And women, right, to Meshachachma, precisely because they're not commanded to have children, Hashem created within their psyche a desire to have children which is even stronger than that of the man. So the woman to under, undergo that risk. And I think most halakhists feel that since every child is a risk, even though it's elevated somewhat with some of these procedures, they're still within the realm of a small, small risk, and therefore it's permissible to undergo these procedures. If you are listening to Rabbi Tenda and you have two children already, you have to ask him, if the risk has gone low enough for, for his criteria. I don't presume to speak for him. But I know that there's others who have a bit of a different approach, a more liberal approach in permitting the undertaking of certain risks in order to be able to have, to have children. Uh, in addition, now this is Pua, as we say, the Shittasa. Pua has a very strong approach about what they call Pikuach, watching carefully to make sure that no mistakes are made. Generally speaking, nothing to do with our particular discussion of today. Anytime there's a situation of, of sperm or of, 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 of eggs, and it is the, the whole IVF, they insist on having a, a pikuach, to having a, you have to take a mashkiach. You know, it's no worse than having mashkiach on uh, meat. You have to have a mashkiach on the, whatever is produced by the man or the woman in this context. 
and that's there again there's a dispute as to how strong the, the, the Shashkacha need be because after all the disincentive to make a mistake in this area is mind-boggling how strong it is if you make a mistake it's a disaster but you know the err is human and if, 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 if individuals who are one of a higher level that will call a belt and suspenders is to make sure that they don't make any mistakes that's certainly something which should be taken into, into account so much for the first part of the presentation, which is about the women's issues. With respect to the men, there are again many medical issues involved over here. First question, is there a question of a certain pro- prohibition that exists in the Torah? It's called Kushovchop to Adaka, without going into those details right now. Do these apply to our circumstances when medical infertility results? The short answer is no. No. The Torah prohibits in a situation where there has been an operation, vasectomies, for example. That's a problem. But these types of... They're equivalent in the result, but not in the way it's done. So therefore it's important to note, and they over here from many dolem of the last uh, generation, the Sheva and Halevi among them, the Ravazna from Bnei Brak, that this is called holy b'day shamayim. There's no mum in the in the actual. There's no blemish in the actual organs, and therefore it's not a problem from that perspective. Okay. Now let us go and discuss the issues with respect to male infertility as a result of cancer treatments. So, as they point out so beautifully here, the two fundamental differences between a man and a woman. On the one hand the man is technically obligated in the midst of procreation. And therefore, many more steps should be taken by the man to preserve his fertility, on the one hand. On the other hand, when discussing male infertility and the avoidance thereof, you run into a problem, as it's called over here, a man is prohibited as a general rule to ejaculate sperm, not in the context of marital relations. Now, this is a problem which was discussed already in the Talmud. Yes, in the Talmud. The Talmud records a case which an individual was a doubt whether in fact he was in the categories we spoke earlier of to a Dr. Kushavka. And the only way to determine that was with an ejaculation which would prove that he is healthy enough to be permitted to marry a woman in Kval Yisrael, of Bukal, and the Talmud and Yisrael of Yisrael permits such an action. And the, the question, of course, is why? And the answer given is, it's not in the category of Levatola. Levatola means to no end. It's not, for, on the contrary, this test, rather primitive test in the old days, I'm sure there are better ways to do it today, but this primitive test was necessary to, to pronounce this man fit to marry, which is obviously a prerequisite for having children. Therefore, it's not called Levatola. Most authorities have extrapolated from that Talmudic precedent to discuss cases of a couple, again, leaving out cancer treatments, not able to produce naturally, but they can produce through what they, what they, I don't know what they call it today, IUI. I'm not at IVF yet. Or they used something called AIH. I'm not, these are Russian tables, which those who are shaking heads know what it means. If you don't know what it means, it's okay also. But it required that the man ejaculate the sperm. And there are three different ways of doing it. Some of their testing for fertility, also important. 
and some say they should do a post-coil exam, and some have what they call the kosher condom, uh, which is obviously doesn't have any uh, any uh, spermicides, and some have to put a hole at the end, and sometimes they say you have to do it into a jar, and most rabbis that I know will, of course, follow the hierarchy, the lesser the problem, the, the better it is, but push comes to shove will permit all of these methods when it comes to fertility testing, again, based on the precedent of the Talmud and the Sechta Yilamas, and I would say that that's certainly true in our case as well. And therefore, to preserve fertility, it would be permissible for the man to ejaculate the sperm, because it's not Limatala, to the contrary. If he doesn't do it as a cancer patient, the likelihood is he's going to be infertile and not to be able to have any children. So you want to do it to be able, enable him to have this ability to have children. Now there are some who say it's only permissible if the man is married already. For one of two reasons. One, if he's married already, it's incumbent upon the Mitzvah Pruvu, because in our, where we come from, the Mitzvah Pruvu, as the Ramam enunciates it, is to have normal relations with your wife, that means you have a wife. Before you have a wife, you're not obligated, you're obligated to try to have a wife, but <laughs> you can't find one. So as long as you don't have a wife, you can't say you're obligated to procreation, where we come from, okay? So he's not married yet, the obligation, of course, is less less, doesn't exist right now, you're supposed to, there's a step missing. Number two, as in the sad case, which I described at the beginning of my presentation, who said he's going to survive? In other words, if he's married now, and he does this now, he can impregnate his wife now, you know, if that's what they want to do, and so the couple will have a child, and if God forbid he passes away, hopefully it will be after the nine months, and the He'll, he'll live to the bris, or whatever, to the child to be born. If not, not. Hopefully he'll live for 120 years. But there's going to be a child born within the context of a marriage. As opposed to a single man, as the case I described, he may pass away without ever marrying. In which case, retroactively, what was done was, in fact, the Vatola. It was for no end. Most authorities assume we're permitted and we even would advise to take that risk. Especially now that the statistics, thanks to people like you, have gotten much better. The survival rates are much better. So it's, it's halakhali permissible to take that risk that it may end up being levatola in order to, prevent, to preserve the male fertility. This is a very important point which most authorities agree with. Again, everything I'm saying is a matter of halakhali dispute, which is those who study halakhali know almost everything is a matter of halakhali dispute. But I'm just giving you my position on these on these matters. And again, I'm repeating, they have it the second time, they had it in the case of the, of the women, they repeat it again. Aside from the ability to fulfill Puravu, the Chinat Sologit, again, the psychology over here, if the man is told, we're going to try to make you better, but you never have children, he may sink into a depression, because after all, this is true of man and a woman. If you can't have children, you are required to tell the potential marriage partner about this fact. You can't hide this. That would be a terrible, terrible thing for it to hide your infertility. It would be terrible. Now, there are people who just don't want to talk about it. You know, I know a cancer survivor. I try information from my own community. Silence. Silence. At the end of the day, what the young man did, he married a woman who already had children. Yeah, obviously it was a second marriage for her, first marriage for him. No more children were born. The assumption is that he was unable to have children. Okay, 
So now he'll, he'll have a happy life with his wife and her children, and that was the right thing to do under such circumstances. Every once in a while, I get a letter in the mail. The rabbi signs it. I have someone in my community. Terrific, fantastic. Cannot have any children. Do you know a man or a woman who's in that same category so they can live together, be married together, have a happy marriage together? They want they can adopt, etc., etc. But of course, now this is was not the topic of our discussion, really. But there is the issue of assisted reproduction with somebody else providing some of the necessary components, such as an egg donor. In the case where a woman has no eggs, but a womb is fine. Or in the opposite case, surrogacy, where her eggs are fine, but she cannot carry. And whoever's in the field knows of both of these cases. These are important cases to know. And we, as a rule, uh, allow for such things when there's no alternative. Uh, the great Rabbi Feinstein, Rabbi Tendler's father-in-law, has a famous response about he's preceded all this new world by artificial insemination from a donor, AID, which he bravely, in those days, was a brave new world. He was so brave that when they threatened him and they, uh, Rabbi Tendler can tell the stories of what happened, certain zealots literally attacked him in many different ways. He held his own as the great righteous person that he was and with, you know, certain caveats and restrictions. What do you do about these possibilities? These possibilities exist. So now a, a woman who has no eggs, born with no eggs, Turner syndrome, born with no eggs. So there's a possibility she can get married, tell the guy in advance, I have no eggs, but you know I can carry a child, so he's a donor egg. This leads to a dispute which Halakas will, I predict, dispute until the Messiah comes, which is, who is the mother? Who is the mother? Is it the genetic mother, or is it the mother who carries the baby? I'm not venturing an opinion right now, but suffice to say that they're still fighting about this one, and probably will forever. Okay. But these are things which have to be taken into account in discussing this topic, which is a very uh, uh, complex topic. How do you deal with such a situation? And getting back, the psychological need to give the man the ability to have children is so critical. Unfortunately, as we heard earlier, sometimes time is so short, time is so short that they can't do it, or they don't know how to do it, or they were, they were irresponsible in not doing it. In particular case that I know about myself personally, all of a sudden somebody just out of the clear blue sky, a terrible diagnosis, said, preserve, preserve, do something. They didn't do it. I don't know if maybe you couldn't ejaculate then. Maybe now there are ways you don't even need ejaculation. You can get it straight from the testicles. I don't know why they didn't do that. I'm not here to, to judge any, any physician. Obviously, the main goal was to save the person's life. It was a terrible diagnosis. But the result was unfortunate. And uh, artificial insemination was always used because there was really almost no alternative in that particular uh, kind of a case. These are some of the important elements that are involved. My time, I see, is also quickly ending. I see that the, the, to summarize, that the preservation of fertility is so important that we should give it our every thought. And I'll just end with this. My topic and our topic is the case of oncology. But you, don't, you need not have a case of oncology to be concerned 
about preservation of fertility. I was approached by this great man, Rabbi Burstein, who runs Pua, to discuss fertility preservation for women who are getting older and are not married yet. And I told him that he's doing it, he's, he's advising it, and that I agree with him. I've spoken about it on a few occasions together with OBGYNs. I think we can discuss the, the nitty-gritty, how old a woman should be when she should consider this possibility of preserving her eggs. And as we heard earlier, the opposite of any cancer. As we heard before, you get older, they start to become weaker. Again, I'm not giving an age. Maybe, maybe the doctor wants to talk about that. But at some point, she slapped and found her bashert. You know, we know cases, too many, where she finds the husband later in life, and by that time the eggs are, are shot, and she was unable to, to have children. This leaves a, a real Pandora's box, which I'm just going to mention without discussing it, that often it's a mitochondrial problem. The, the nucleus of the egg is fine. Then you have the case of the three parents, as they call it, uh, which uh, is another ethical issue and a moral issue and a halachic issue. And uh, some rabbis have addressed it, uh, one of the great rabbis in Israel, Rabbi Usher Weiss, he lives in the brave of the world. I only come in once in a while. And he actually permitted it on the grounds that it's really the nuclear, uh, the nucleus of the egg, which is the main thing, which is, of course, the, uh, would lead to a possible conclusion that it's really the genetic mother that's the mother, not the host mother. I'm not going to get about just mentioning it to you right now. These possibilities have to be explored in such cases. Thank you very much for listening. Dr. Maslow. We're now going to open the floor to some questions, if anyone has. Any questions? Or...
you know, we can debate what's the right age for a young, healthy woman to pursue egg freezing. And think what we're thinking there is, what is this one individual woman's risk of infertility later on in life, right? The goal of egg freezing is to be able to increase the chances of success should somebody experience infertility in the future. If you're talking to a 20-year-old woman who had lymphoma as a 9-year-old, her longevity of her fertility is not going to be 20 years. It's going to be 5 years or 10 years. Her chance of requiring those eggs or needing some kind of assistance is extraordinarily high. And so they're the perfect candidate for egg freezing in a way that we don't even have to debate, are they too old, are they too young, is this the right time, is this the wrong time, this is a great time. Um, and so that's for the women or for girls. Um, because the eggs can be preserved to some degree. Now, oftentimes, unfortunately, there are some treatments that just, you know, that obliterate the egg supply, and there is no way to regenerate it once it is obliterated. Um, on the flip side, for men or for boys, because the way sperm production differs in um, than egg production, sperm is constantly being produced. Every day, new sperm is being produced. It takes roughly, you know, 60 to 90 days for a new sperm to go from its kind of immature state to mature state, but there's a constant production. In that way, men, um, or the male reproductive system, is extraordinarily sensitive to the environment. Um, and so there's lots of things that can impair sperm production in a way that eggs are spared, are saved. Um, and on the one hand, if the, um, the male um, gonads and gametes survive the impact of the chemotherapy, they're often able to regenerate relatively close to their original peak. Um, and so if somebody's given, if a boy is given a fertility sparing chemotherapy regimen that doesn't involve alkylating agents, for example, they may get to have a completely normal fertility. Uh, but if unfortunately, and since the, the male reproductive system is more sensitive to those gonadotoxic agents, if the sort of machinery is obliterated by the chemotherapy, there's really not that much that can be done at that point. And it's really, it's almost an all or nothing scenario. Uh, we have time for a few more questions.
how their overall treatment because they see that their oncologist cares about what's going to happen to them after they survive, and that implies that there's a high level of, you know, even their oncologist believes that they will survive. In children, that's much less the case because there is just so much logistics that go into um, taking care of a child, even an adolescent. If you think about an adolescent whose life is completely disrupted by a new malignancy, it is very hard for that person to think about you know, what's the impact of this on their fertility 10, 15 years from now. So I will say on the, on the ground, the challenge is very real um, in terms of consent and willingness and motivations and sometimes the parents are more motivated than the child and the child is more motivated than the parents. Um, and that's where these, these multidisciplinary teams come into play. Um, and that's also, also why I bring up this issue of sort of now that pediatric malignancies are so survivable, to revisit those conversations post-treatment because one, the child will be then older, the sort of major dramatic flux of their life has passed and they're better able to really have a, um, an understanding and a motivation to proceed with those. Thank you for addressing these issues. A lot of them, unfortunately, come down to money. Are you having issues with insurers involving that fee for treatments, either a child is treatment or an adult either? And secondly, secondly, what happens if people can't afford to keep paying for their games being broken for the part of their nine and every 25? What's happening to them? So I'll repeat the question. The question was um, in terms of financial burden for proceeding with these uh, fertility preservation treatments, as well as the financial burden of maintaining the preservation, meaning something was frozen and then it's being maintained for many years, potentially decades to come, there's a fee that goes along with that. Uh, so I will say it is, at this point, um, very rare that insurance will cover it. There are a handful of states that require insurance cover um, fertility preservation in the setting of a new malignancy. Uh, Connecticut and Illinois, I believe, are the only ones, maybe Rhode Island as well. Um, and so this is by and large coming, being paid for outside of an insurance policy. Um, there are some organizations that have uh, financial support. So I work very closely with, with the Live Strong organization. Uh, many organizations will donate medications towards this. So the pharmaceutical companies have ear, they have earmarked medications that they donate specifically to oncology patients. Uh, and there are newer organizations that are coming out specifically to create grants to support fertility preservation and the fees for storage. Generally, most places have a discounted fee um, when it comes to an oncology case, either pediatric or adult. Um, in my current practice, I mean, we have a sort of very different cost approach model to fertility preservation in general. Um, and when it comes to fertility preservation for oncology, whether it's an adolescent or a young woman, um, we have a significantly discounted price, but unfortunately we can't do it for free. Um, and so we partner with, with uh, various organizations. I will say, just to put out there, since we're in this, this uh, um, environment, as far as I know, there is no... Um, Jewish religious organization that has taken this as their um, flagship yet. One that I would love to see, and I've sort of tried to navigate that amongst the Jewish in the um, you know 
other Jewish organizations that have similar um, similar missions. But I think this is a, a beautiful mission for uh, an organization to to take uh, in terms of supporting young adults who have had a malignancy or who are you know adolescents or children who are undergoing malignancy treatment to be able to have that counseling and have those options um, is something that you know as like I said, as pediatric cancers are becoming more survivable, this is something as a community that we 